Complaints about student writing are embedded in faculty conversations across disciplines. What if the issues with student writing, though, are not their fault, but ours instead? In this episode, we'll talk about writing better prompts to make explicit what the expectations are and how to get there. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Today, our guests are Dr. Allison Rank, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the State University of New York at Oswego, and Dr. Heather Poole, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Denison University. Allison and Heather are co-authors of an article titled, Writing Better, Writing Assignments, published in Political Science and Politics. Welcome, Allison and Heather. Thank you. Thanks. So welcome back to Allison, I think, right? Yes. Yes. Welcome back, <laughs> Allison. <laughs> so today our teas are... Tea forte, black urn, black tea. Water. Again. It was coffee last time. Okay. <laughs> I'm also water because I forgot that this was tea oriented. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have to send out those reminders ahead of time, I guess. <laughs> Mine is Harney and Sons Paris tea. What prompted your interest in writing about writing assignments? I'll start with that. I was director of a writing center at the University of Washington for social science writing for a couple of years. And then Allison filled my seat after me. It was after we had seen numerous prompts that our students were coming in and asking for help with. And, and Allison, after she had completed her time at the writing center, came to me and was like, I think we can do this. We can give some people feedback about how to do a better job at writing these. We saw a lot of prompts that could have been more clear. Let's just say that. Were there prompts that you didn't understand? I think usually we could figure out how to interpret them, but it was very easy to see why students couldn't figure out how to interpret them. Yeah, right. And so oftentimes what happens is prompts are basically dissertations, right? (laughs) Where you could literally write hundreds of pages on them, or they're so narrow that if you answer all of the questions, then there's sort of no space for analysis or creativity or anything like that. To add some detail, so Heather had that job for two years, and then I had the job for two years. We sort of had four years between us of seeing these various prompts come in across the subfields of political science. And we're actually seeing a lot of very similar problems in prompts on very different topics, which I think for us was part of being able to think about it's the structure of how we write the prompts and how professors think about prompts is actually a place for an intervention. And then starting to teach our own classes, sort of getting the sense that sometimes what comes back from students is on them, but also we need to be a little bit more responsible around what it is we ask students to do. Because sometimes some components of their poor writing may actually be more our fault than we'd like to admit. I think we can all probably experience the idea that you get something back and you're like, yeah, 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 you answered that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and part of it, too, just to follow up on what Allison said, is we ourselves were early career and we're just writing our own writing assignments for the first time. As a TA, you sort of inherit the assignments that people write, and you're like, okay, and work with that. And But then when it comes to create your own, there's no roadmap out there at all. And so you stumble into stuff and you write assignments that the students have no idea how to interpret. And so on the one hand, it was seeing some things that were out there that we thought, wow, there's problems here. There's sort of commonalities and we can imagine how to get out of that problem. And part of it was (laughs) self-help. We're looking for a resource that didn't exist. And Allison's brilliant idea was like, ooh, we could create that resource. And so that was a huge part of it. 
faculty definitely want students to be good writers, yeah. but we expect students to come in with those skill sets often. And faculty often see themselves as content providers, but not necessarily writing instructors. And I think that we hear that a lot, even on campuses where writing across the curriculum exists. What role do you see faculty having in helping students develop their writing beyond just the prompt? I think that faculty have a really important role to play on writing, but I think part of it comes from knowing what it is that you want to help students improve and having reasonable expectations for what the class that you have set up can actually help students do. In doing our research, when Heather's saying we had a hard time finding roadmaps as we dug into a lot of the Bloom's taxonomy literature and trying to figure out... If we're writing prompts that ask students to take particular steps, are we actually providing students the roadmaps for those steps? So one of the things that I struggle with a lot is the way in which I don't recognize that I've been disciplined. So I've been disciplined as a political scientist. I ask questions in a way that political scientists ask questions and then get mad when my students don't understand that that's part of my expectations. But I also never make that explicit in content, even in the content driven courses that the way I'm approaching this content is about a political science perspective. And here's how that might be different. And here's how those expectations should then influence the way that you write a paper or approach a question. And so I think that it's linking up the expectations for helping students with writing to the expectations we have around content delivery, as I think where a lot of faculty should spend more time. And I teach political theory. It's not really a testable subject. I could do a test but I don't think that's a particularly helpful way to evaluate people's engagement with the content. And on some level, I actually think it's a cop-out when faculty members say that they're only content providers, in part because I think we learn through writing, and it's not until we're actually able to write about things that we grasp the kind of significance and the meaning and all of those things. And we actually have some research, and I think it's in Bean's engaging ideas. I could be wrong. She suggests that we learn as we write. It's only in the process of actually trying to put other people's words into our own context that we actually grasp what's going on. And so to be effective content teachers, I think we need to figure out how to be effective writing teachers as well. And I think it's important to be clear when we're asking them to summarize and when we're asking them to analyze and when we're asking them to evaluate. And those are all different things. And we need to give them opportunities to work on those things before we have them write big final papers where we ask them to do all of those without any scaffolding. So speaking of those nice keywords, <laughs> I know that I've had conversations with students and they can't actually tell me the difference between describe, analyze, reflect, mm-hmm. things like that. So can you share a little bit about how you might frame that for students? what those words mean and how you structure that? Sure. Now, I'll say off the top, I think that faculty a lot of the time don't know what they mean when they (laughs) use those specific terms. And so part of what we would actually see in the writing center is prompts that said describe, but we'd read them and know that if you actually just described, you are not going to get a good grade on this paper. That that was the word that was in the prompt, but I would bet money (laughs) that if you followed those instructions, you would have problems. So I think I occasionally for students will actually define the terms that are in the prom. If I'm asking you to analyze, let's walk through in class one day, what would be the difference between summarizing this content and analyzing this content? So actually walking them through what the terminology is. I also think that that's where 
having subprompts after a prompt can be really helpful where you break down for students that I expect you to summarize or describe a particular amount of the content and then analyze something so that they sort of have to distinguish for themselves what part of this assignment am I addressing in different components of my paper. Yeah, I think that's great. I do things like I have students do small stakes, regular assignments where I have them summarize and then reflect and then ask a question. And so they're already thinking about the difference between summary and reflection. And then I actually in class will talk about what's the difference between describing something and analyzing something. And one example that I use because I went to grad school in Seattle is I'm getting off of a plane in Seattle. 70% of the people on the plane are wearing super awesome Gore-Tex water repellent gear, and 20% of them are wearing wool, and 10% of them aren't wearing coats. So that's a description of the situation. But analysis is telling me why that's the case. It's trying to explain what we see and to make sense of it. So I then ask them to come up with reasons why what that description says makes sense or what stories they can tell about why that's what they see. And there's also a great piece. It's the Netflix, the new Sherlock Holmes. It's the lady in pink where he walks into a room and he sees a woman dead on the floor. And then Sherlock Holmes goes through and comes up with all the stories about why the, ex- the particular things that he's seeing are what he's seeing. And it's a really effective tool for students to be like, oh, summary is really different, right? And many times prior instructors may have asked them to summarize. And so they're relatively good at that. But it's the analysis part that they really struggle with. Again, I think it's our job to help them figure out what analysis actually is. One of the things that I've noticed in my own department, we've been talking about writing in our department quite a bit lately. We had a conversation. My department is made up of art historians, designers, and studio artists. It all makes up like an art and design department. So it seems like it's all one discipline, but we all have really different cultures (laughs) within that discipline. And that we talk through what some of the kinds of writing that we do in our department and discovered that we didn't really mean the same thing. And so we're working on developing a common language and sharing that out within our own department to make sure that we can be consistent between levels, because I think that's some of the confusion that our students are experiencing. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And of course, writing across disciplines varies greatly. So we may put thesis statements in different places if we're in the humanities or if we're in the social sciences, we may approach quotes differently and whether or not it's appropriate to use them or not appropriate to use them. What counts as evidence differs from discipline to discipline. And the way I set that up for students is to say, you're going to end up in jobs where you don't actually know what they want when they ask you to write something. And you're going to need to be able to figure that out. And that's actually what we're trying to give you here is the ability to approach a writing practice and figure the rules out. And there's different rules in different disciplines. And your job is to develop the facility to be able to move between those things as needed. Yeah, I've done something in class with my intro class, which tends to be it's very frequently a general education class. So there tend to be students from a lot of different majors and actually just asking them, how do you think you're supposed to write a paper? And you'll get all sorts of answers about right. what a thesis statement is supposed to be. You should never use I, which is a thing yes. in political science. That's like, no, I got to break you of that right now. Yeah. <laughs> you need to tell right. me. I argue X, Y, and Z, and it students are so taken aback, but it's so much easier if you start, at least for me, by getting them to tell you what are all the rules you think you know, so that I know where I need to tell you that at least for this class in this space, that's not the right rule. But mm-hmm. part of it is just being more transparent with students yes. and yeah. making yeah. sure they understand what you expect from them in terms of coming up with good writing prompts. You mentioned scaffolding a bit. How do you yeah. scaffold it in terms of the stages of writing? How do you break it up for students or do you have them just submit it in a full draft or what? 
Yeah, I think it really depends for me on different classes. Mm -hmm. So for the intro class, before their sort of four-page papers, they write a couple four-page papers, mm -hmm. they do something called reading reflections, but it's really a worksheet where they have to tell me the author or authors, the title, what type of source is it using the Chicago Style Guide. So it's essentially breaking out for them everything they would need to know for citations. They have to tell me the research question, what they think the thesis statement would be in their own words, which again is to get them in this format of saying like Madison argues X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm. a couple good quotations, and then their own initial impression of the piece. So then when they sit down to write the paper, they already have this sort of stack of material that's like, oh, if I want to argue X, who would I go to as evidence to support that claim? In my advanced classes, I tend to break it down more in terms of the annotated bibliography. So before they would ever touch writing a longer paper, I first want an annotated bibliography. And I do it slightly different than a quote unquote normal annotated bibliography. I ask for one paragraph of summary. And then for every entry, I need one more paragraph that tells me the relationship between that piece and at least two other pieces in the annotated bibliography. So getting them to think through what are the relationships that help them categorize where a literature review could go before throwing like literature review on top of what it is that they have to write? And I may have stolen the annotated bibliography from Heather. It's possible I'm a big <laughs> fan of annotated bibliographies. Yes. So yeah, I do some similar things. I still haven't used Allison's reading reflection assignment, but I'm inching closer and closer to that mostly because I'm a little overwhelmed by grading. I have them do seven of these reading responses, I call them, where they do summary reflection and then ask a discussion question. So that is getting them to train to summarize stuff. And again, the point is they have to do one of those for each of the authors that we read. So they actually have a pretty decent summary and they have the other 24 summaries from people in the class that they can go to when it comes to writing their own papers. And then for my intro class, I hand the paper out and maybe two and a half or three weeks before it's due. And then I require a draft on, say, Tuesday. They then do peer review in class on Thursday. And then the final draft of the paper is due the following Tuesday. So they have to have a pretty decent working draft a week before the paper is due. And I say, if you make a good faith effort, then there's no deductions from your final grade. So it's not a graded assignment, but it is one that if you don't do it, will hurt you. And the same thing for substantive good faith peer review. I like that a lot because the peer reviewers catch really irritating things that when I see them time after time after time, I get angry. And so the peer reviewers catch a lot of that where they say things like, you seem to have a problem with paragraph structure. And somehow when they're hearing that from their peers, and then they hear the same thing from me when I give them feedback, I then ask them to do a reflection on the feedback that basically enforces them reading the comments, where one of the questions is, do you see any commonalities in the feedback you received from your peers and myself? And surprisingly, there often is commonality there. And so then I start to get them thinking about like, what are their patterns of error? And what can they do to address those patterns of error? So in terms of scaffolding, I make it do early and I make it a low stakes draft. And then they have a week where they can talk to their peers, they can come talk to me in office hours, etc. So that the paper that they turn in has been seen by at least two other pairs of eyes. Yeah, I should say I do in, in my advanced classes, I have a version of that where there's a draft due two weeks before finals week. And then students do not get evaluated on their drafts. They get evaluated on the quality of their feedback. Oh, I love that. It's like a 5% grade. Yeah, I think it's like 2% you turned in a draft. And then after that, I have a sheet. I was doing it not graded, just sort of the participation points. And I would get feedback that was like, I really liked what you did here. <laughs> And I was like, no, no, this is not going to work for me. 
And so changed it to where there's an actual rubric for me to evaluate the feedback that they provide each other. And that has gotten students to give much more direct feedback. That was something I was just going to ask. Have you used (laughs) rubrics in this? And what do you see as the advantage of using a rubric for assessment? Because we have writing specific classes and then we have ones that aren't. But frankly, all of mine would qualify for the W overlay just because of the percentages and the way I teach. And I really care about writing. So it's a, a central part of the course. But not all of them are W's. And if they're W's, they have lower numbers of students. And I can't offer only W's for curriculum reasons. And so generally, all my classes are really heavy on writing. And so I've moved more and more towards pretty specific rubrics where I basically highlight and bold stuff and then have a relatively short comment section. And I've just switched to a new rubric this semester. And I actually think I like it. I tend to over comment on their papers when I'm not constrained by a rubric and constrained by space, frankly. And so for me, I'm a big fan, right? This is what an A paper looks like. Here are four different categories that I'm assessing you on. This is what a B paper looks like. Here are four different categories for that as well. And so I'm tentatively enthusiastic about pretty specific rubrics. I like very specific rubrics for intro classes. I have a hard time using very specific rubrics in a lot of my advanced classes. And I think it's because I struggle to write rubrics that I think are balance the line on being detailed enough to be a valid value, but broad enough to where students can really sort of flex their muscles when it's an open research question. And in Mm -hmm. a lot of my advanced classes, it's an open question. And so then I find I have a rubric, but it ends up being a sort of like on these criteria, would you be rated as excellent, good, fair, Mm -hmm. weak, poor? And so it tells them where they are and then with comments, but it's nowhere near the level of sort of fine grain value of the rubric that my intro classes have where everyone's writing on the exact same question. You are both hinting at differences in the role that a faculty member might play in different levels of courses between like intro, intermediate and advanced. Can you explicitly address that and what the faculty member's role is in each of those kinds of levels? Yeah, you know, I think I do something similar to what Allison does with my upper division classes, which I just taught a senior seminar. I have them do essentially two kind of shorter papers that are kind of lit review where I'm asking them a pretty specific question about some segment of the course reading. And then I have a big where like, you tell me what your research question is. And then they go through a proposal, an annotated bibliography, a draft with a clear thesis, and then a final draft. And that starts basically in the fall. The first one of those is the proposal is basically due at the beginning of November and the final paper isn't due until the middle of December. And so I'm also a really big fan of If you don't like the topics I wrote, then you write one and tell me what you would like to write on, in part because I think we say this in the paper. I actually am really interested in reading interesting papers. I would much rather read a paper that incorporates the material from the class in a way that you find compelling and that that you want to write about than I would read your rote response to my question that you found really stupid. And so I do give them that freedom, but with the caveat that they do have to come talk to me. And I give students actually that freedom for intro all the way up to senior sims or my most advanced classes. But I do think it's different when I've got a cinema major versus when I've got political science majors. I talk about writing and use examples in different ways across those levels. Yeah, 
And I think that I, in the same way that you wouldn't deliver the same content from intro to American government to an advanced American government class, I think it's the same in terms of writing skills. And so I tend to focus more in the intro class on these statements, trying to lay bare some of the relatively, I would think, in some ways rudimentary, though thesis statements are a deeply complicated space, focusing on the building blocks of being in the discipline, base expectations of writing, and then in the more advanced levels focusing on the types of writing that I think are in different forms more likely to be both of interest to them, but then also let them test skills that are more likely to be relevant. So for instance, I don't have any full papers in my advanced classes, usually outside of the big papers that are due during finals week. But for every book we read in a class, I have them do a critical analysis. It's essentially a book review, but I found that if I call it a book review, I get book reports, which is not what I want. So I call it a critical analysis. And the guidelines are, I want no more than a half page of summary and then up to two and a half pages of analysis. I don't read anything over page three with the idea of you need to be concise. I don't want it to be summary. And I give a set of prompts about what you can. Here's some places you might want to go. But they're very open in terms of talking about the content you know from your broadcast communication class that I haven't read. Or how does this book help you think differently about some event that happened on campus or is happening in the news? Where I think that that type of analytical skill is sort of more what I want my advanced students to start being able to do. This thing I read in the classroom connects to some broader literature in political science or literature from another discipline or just the way I interpret the world. And that's sort of where I see the writing in the advanced classes outside of the research papers as more my responsibility. I was just going to follow up. If I'm teaching seniors again, and they're on the job market themselves and trying to figure out why they just did a major in political science and trying to actually have them answer a question that is meaningful to them, as opposed to like, I need to know that you know how to read a book <laughs> and find yeah. the thesis statement. And so really trying to create space for more advanced students to do more advanced, interesting things. In the classes where you use rubric, do you mm-hmm. share the rubrics with students? Because I would think that would give them a little bit more scaffolding in letting Mm -hmm. them know what you think is important and helping them determine how to structure their papers and things. Yeah, I would say sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. In introductory classes where I have students that are already very concerned about doing things quote unquote right, I actually tend not to because I find that they then hew to the rubric in ways that are actually really counterproductive. I'll give them more of the, what I would consider the left-hand column of the rubric. So I'll take into account when I'm grading, your citations will be 10%. Your grammar and style will be up to 10%. Your thesis is going to be worth 20% so that they know how points are distributed. But I don't actually like to give the sort of specific boxes that are sort of, it's going to be an excellent if there are X criteria. Because I found that that tends to lead to really I think, counterproductive conversations about, well, how do I meet the standard of that box as opposed to what makes a good analytical argument? I don't put percentages on my rubrics. I'm a big fan of the visual rubric where I'm like, there's a lot of things in the C column. So it's a C. There are a few things in the A column, but there's mostly things in the B column. That's a B plus. I'm a political theorist. We don't really do quantitative things particularly well. I'm a big fan of not sharing that because I don't actually know how to do that. Some rubrics I share with them, I share rubrics about their participation with them. Like, here's what I expect a good participant in this class to be able to do. And I assess them on that. 
But I just started using this new rubric, so I didn't share that with them at the beginning of this term. But now I think maybe I should have. I don't know if I think it would help them or hurt them. I wonder. Sometimes I find I have detailed rubrics that I use for grading. And I just started using our learning management system to use the rubrics. And I found that that actually can be really challenging because when I do it on paper, I sometimes circle the line between things. (laughs) Yes, right. Me too. (laughs) And then you have to pick one. But Um, if you're doing it in Blackboard or some other learning management system, you can always override. Yeah, well, I was just going to... If someone works outside the box. Yeah. Yeah. And I sometimes will make a comment if I put it in the C column, a comment as to why it's there if it wasn't one of the criteria I had originally come up with. And so it's very clear. So I've been kind of experimenting with that a little bit. I tend to share the rubric, but I also find that students tend not to look at the rubric. (laughs) Until it comes back with a letter grade on it. And then they're like, but why? What happened? Yeah, I will say that I use the point rubric in Blackboard for classes where the size or the amount of papers, and so it's basically just for intro, where it speeds grading, Yeah, right? Like that's when I do a points rubric in Blackboard. But even then, the idea that Blackboard defaults you to having three categories and that I always go in and I'm like, no, I, yeah. d- I definitely need a couple more point variations. Yeah, I usually just have four or five three. on yeah, 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 I have to go in and sort of add because I tried doing it with three ones and I was like, why is everyone getting a 30? <laughs> oh, but you can pick whatever values. Yeah. Yes, are and so then I, I had to go in. That was sort of my first experience using it last year, and I was like, "Well, that's wrong." <laughs> I had to go back in and regrade and adjust, change all the rubrics. But it's okay now. Yeah, it takes but it a can l- be little learning process. Where <laughs> yes. if something doesn't work, you can yeah. modify it. Yeah. yeah, that's also why I often don't put percentages for the categories yeah. up front, is because I sometimes see what I get back to see if I need to adjust what mm-hmm. I thought the weights were going to be to make it more fair. I struggle with the percentages because writing is hard to do in any sort of objective fashion. And I worry about the kind of thesis as a percentage because sometimes they write a not so great thesis and have a brilliant paper, right? And so then you're like, well, okay, so you got 75% of the way there on your thesis, but your argument at the end was actually really good. And so my feedback is write a clearer thesis because your argument's really interesting. But it's hard for me to figure out how to do that. One of the things that I think we haven't addressed, but sort of hinted at a little bit is not only is there disciplinary ways of approaching writing, but there's cultural ways of approaching Mm -hmm. writing too. Mm -hmm. And so when you were talking, Allison, about needing to write really concisely, that's something that's popular in design as well. (laughs) And in economics. Yeah. Economical writing. Right. But I often have students who want to write with very flowery language or think that academic writing looks a particular way. And usually it's very convoluted and very complicated sentences that don't make any sense. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder where they got that idea. (laughs) (laughs) Often I train political science. I always in my intro classes and occasionally in my advanced classes, depending on how many students it would be a repeat for, pass out a piece called How Texas Teaches History from, I believe, Ellen Brockmore. It was an op-ed in the New York Times a couple of years ago about the the high school textbooks that had gone out in Texas, where all of the quote-unquote benefits of a slave-holding society, which is a deeply problematic framing, masters taught slaves Christianity has an active phrasing, and then all of the brutalities of slavery are framed in passive voice. Slaves were beaten. Slaves were assaulted. And so you excuse any actors. And I pass that out to students before we do sort of when I complain about your grammar, when I correct grammar, I'm not doing it because this is a pedantic exercise and I just want you to meet these standards. I do it because in political science, it is incredibly important that we are accountable for who the agents are that act 
And the only way that I know who your agents are is when you tell me who the agents are. And I think that sometimes that tends to help ground at least conversations too about flowery language, where it's a slightly different point, but I can often say, what you're doing here is actually obscuring for me who is acting and what they're doing. And the most important thing that I need to know is who's acting and why they're acting and why it matters. And so I found that piece actually really hit students in a way that's like, I never thought about it before. I never thought about why it mattered before. And I found that to be really helpful. We both teach in political science. And I think that this is particularly true in politics. Instead of the something must be done. Well, what needs to be done and who needs to do it, right? In politics, I think that a pressing question in ways that it may be less pressing in other fields of study. I find that one of the comments that I write a lot for design students is like, you haven't said anything, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's only one sentence here that says anything and the rest can go. (laughs) And I do spend a fair bit of time talking about my own writing practice, actually, in class where when they're working on the first drafts of their paper... I will tell the story of my first published article. I was like, all done and oh, yay, I'm about to send it out. And then I realized that the word count was 4,000 words less than the words that I had. So I needed to cut 4,000 words from my (laughs) manuscript in order to send it in. Exactly. (laughs) Gee, it was the first, you know, like ignorance. And then I tell them I got rid of all of the adjectives and all of the adverbs. And I cut several paragraphs slash pages in total. And it made it better. You read the draft that I thought was finished and the draft that was submitted. And the second one is way better because I had to be economical with my language. I had to be really clear. I had to be direct. I had to say what I wanted to say and move on as opposed to lingering lovingly over the words because they were so pretty. (laughs) Which is what we as people who write as a part of our job eventually realize that. But they haven't had that drilled into them in the same way. And like, that's my job. <laughs> yeah. It's to make you kill your word babies. <laughs> I definitely am a fan of showing students my writing process. So for instance, when I teach the annotated bibliography, Heather, you may not know this. I actually show that part of the annotated bibliography I sent you for the Bletchley Circle paper. Oh my God, that's when, awesome. When I was in charge of doing the lit review for a piece that we co-authored, what I show to students on how to do a lit review is like, so here's the thing I sent to my co-writer. This is when I was doing work with someone else. This is how you do it. So I show that I've actually taken to showing my annotated readings in class. So Mm -hmm. in classes where I want students to annotate, I actually just put my work up on the dot cam instead of doing the like, everybody to page 57. And then I just can only see my book. I want them to see that part of writing is also the annotating. And so getting as transparent in some ways about my process as possible, I have increasingly done. One of the first pieces I assigned in my intro class, it's like a four-page piece. I think his name is Lee Braver. It's in the journal or the teaching journal of the American Philosophical Association Mm -hmm. or something. But it's how I mark up text, right? How I mark up philosophy text. And so part of it is just getting them to pay attention to how they're reading. And in many ways, that gets them to pay more attention to how they're writing and to how when they read a text that they leave thinking, oh, I understood that. It's usually because the writing is really clear and you want everyone to leave to finish reading your paper in the same way and have that sense of like, oh, I know what was argued. And if they don't have that, then it's your job to actually fix it in the same way that we can read authors and say, gosh, I wish Thomas Hobbes used fewer words, but he's dead. You're not. You can do better. What are some tips that you have for faculty who are writing their assignments for the semester (laughs) or getting ready to write ones for the fall? 
Right. Yeah. We're all definitely working on our fall prompts. I think it's really helpful to have other people look at them. I actually think it's really helpful to have people not in your field and not even in your subfield look at them. So I will occasionally ask my partner to read prompts and she does not do what I do. I've definitely sent assignments to Allison Mm -hmm. to just be, does this make sense? Do you understand what I'm asking? I've had former students read prompts as well to see if it's clear what I'm asking them to do. I think a huge part of it is time, like not writing it right before you hand it out and then getting other people's eyes on it who aren't you. Yeah, I think so. Definitely a Heather and I send prompts back and forth before the semester starts. I also am a huge fan of having all of my assignments done before the semester starts. I have everything loaded in Blackboard in the assignments every assignment is in before the semester begins. And that helps me know, partially it's for me with planning a syllabus. If this is what I expect students to be able to do, where do I have to be? What do they actually have to have in order to do this assignment? So for me, it's just part of that, of the planning process. I also increasingly have a sort of stable rotation of assignments that I like, that I sort of have figured out packages for. And I, particularly in the advanced classes where it's that more sort of open, I want them to be able to do what they want to do. I think figuring out assignment structures that are get refined over time and work well. And then if they're open enough, you can reuse them pretty frequently. And the thing I like about that a lot is that then the students start interpreting it for one another it helps them become teachers for each other. So for instance, with those critical analysis assignments, occasionally when it's students that I've had for the first time, they'll ask a question, I'll try to answer it. And then another student will raise their hands and be like, Dr. Rank, I got it. And they'll be like, so the thing she wants from you is this. I'm like, great, (laughs) thank you for that. I also have have taken to, as I'm doing the grading, particularly at this point for my intro class, I give them two or three options for which topic they want to answer. And I will switch generally one of those topics each time because I've realized that it's not actually asking something that's important for them to think about for the course, or it's really poorly phrased, or it's not directing them to actually answer what I want. And so if you've got something that's worked relatively well, tweaking it as you're grading it, you get your first five papers and you're like, oh, nobody answered the way I thought they were. It may be me. (laughs) Maybe it's not my students that are, maybe I misstated what I actually wanted. And so I will, as I am sort of finishing grading something, if I realize that I wrote it wrong or that I wrote it unclearly, I immediately go in and fix it because I know I won't actually remember the next time I use this that I did it badly. Heather, I've also found that to be a really good procrastination technique during finals (laughs) week. So during finals week, I do so much planning for the following (laughs) semester. Oh, that's when many assignments get written to go in Blackboard for the next semester, let's be honest. That's true. Going back to the thing about having a portfolio of assignments Mm -hmm. that you can rotate in, how do you deal with things like Chegg and Course Hero and other sites where students upload those materials? Sure. I think because... For what I'm talking about, the prompts are so broad that honestly, if students have my assignment for how to write an annotated bibliography ahead of time, bully for you. I'm really excited that you're reading this annotated bibliography guideline well, what prior I'm more to being in my with, class. For, some of the, for the final projects and so forth, what prevents students from submitting mildly revised version of something that someone submitted two or three years ago? I think that becomes about how often you teach the same class and using the same package Mm -hmm. for the same class. So I'd say I have probably three packages of assignments that are scaffolded that work for different types of classes. And I tend to not use the same package the second time I teach a class. So you're getting a good chunk of time between assignments. And again, I don't teach large enough classes where I'm 
super concerned about not noticing, if that makes sense, because they have to give me a research. For most of these, they require what's your research topic going to be? And then I'm going to give you some feedback. And then you're going to turn in an annotated bibliography Mm -hmm. and I'm going to give you some feedback. So to some degree, if those are all coming back and you're pulling them out of something like Chegg, I feel relatively confident that I'd be able to tell. Yeah. Okay. And I also, even for the the classes that I recycle topics for regularly, I will often realize between iteration two and three that I asked for three sources from the course and actually that was undoable. And so I lessened it to two and I actually caught somebody who used the three sources prompt for the two sources assignment that I had given them. And then I switched the readings out as well. And so previously it had been the full book and this time it was an excerpt. And I, I don't think you read all of Spinoza to write this paper. And so those sort of minor adjustments that you're making to your syllabus, it's relatively easy to catch. And I'm not teaching 250 students a semester. I have maybe 50 or 60 or or 70. And so it's relatively easy for me to catch the minor variations that I've made in my assignments or that I've made in the syllabus that they may not think I'll catch. What response have you gotten from students about your assignments and the way that your assignments are structured? I'm not sure if this is about how the assignments are structured, though in the advanced classes it might be. I get a lot of feedback from students that my classes are where they get the most feedback on their writing, that they never get as much feedback on writing as they get from my assignments. And I think that is partially because I think I'm sure this is true for Heather, too. If you're a professor who cares a lot about writing, you give more feedback on writing. But I think it's also because of that, so many of my assignments are staged that I feel a real obligation to give a lot of feedback and then to give do-overs in some ways, right? Where it's just sort of the lower stakes stuff first, and then you can fix it. And so I hear a lot from students about appreciating the amount of feedback. I also hear a lot about appreciating the variable points that I assign for certain assignments. So I have assignments that are structured so that if you improve more than one letter grade between the two assignments, the point value of the second one goes up and the point value of the first one goes down. And students also talk about really appreciating that. I certainly have students who say in my evaluations, and I also ask them to do a sort of final portfolio that reflects on their learning as a writer. What are your greatest strengths as a writer? What are your greatest weaknesses? Or I don't say that. I say, what are your areas to work on improvement? (laughs) And so I ask them at multiple points throughout the semester to do that kind of metacognitive reflective stuff, because I actually think it makes them better learners, which means they become better writers. And so my experience as an undergrad was I got a lot of papers that had a letter grade and like the occasional good or what in the comments. And that was pretty much it. I had no idea what I needed to do to get an A and I wanted to get an A. And no one actually took the time to tell me the steps that I needed to take. And so I try really hard to say, here are the four things you did really well in this paper. Like, oh, my goodness, you used those sources really well. Great, clear, plausible interpretations of the authors. You have a beautiful writing voice. Your citations were perfect. And then follow up with the sort of areas of growth and improvement. And I also end up always being a cheerleader that I'm like, you have one more of these. You can totally crush it. And so students, even if they get a grade that they're not particularly excited about, I am on their side. I want them to succeed. And they know that. And they also know that because I didn't just give them a letter grade. The drawback, of course, is this is incredibly time consuming. And I'm not sure how sustainable it is. And I hope it is because I really care about it. And it's one of the places that I find the most satisfaction when I've had a student in two or three classes and I look at their first paper that they ever wrote for me and I look at the last paper that they wrote for me and there is a marked difference. And I value that so much. 
but it also just takes so much time. And that's why rubrics, obviously, as I'm moving more towards rubrics that have less space for me to write, that becomes a little more feasible. I feel like one of the things that I really like about and keep in my brain from the paper that we wrote is to always give that sort of a big question that lets students the difference between a prompt and sub prompts. So the prompt is the question that you could write a dissertation on. And then the sub prompts are the space where you tell students to get a good grade on this paper. I'm going to need you to do the following three things. I need you to summarize the framers argument or justifications for X component of the Constitution. I need you to analyze the differences between the interpretation of the Constitution when it was put in place by the framers and the interpretation of it in the wake of the New Deal. And I need you to interpret changes in who is allowed to be a citizen or considered to be a citizen in the United States. So there's a really big question at the top that you could write a dissertation on. And then there are these cues that help students understand what are the important parts of answering that question. Because I often think that's where students have a hard time distinguishing. They could give you lots of answers for the big question, but those of us who are sort of in the field will be like, that is the least important thing you could say. Like, that's the least relevant way you could answer that question, but it's an answer to the question. And so it's maybe not fair to hold them accountable for that. And so giving the sub prompts helps cue them to really pay attention to the particular things that matter in a way that they might not have before. And then again, having that ahead of time helps me as the professor know what I need to make sure they're hitting in class. If they're not bringing those things up on their own, I need to make sure I do it with them so that when the paper comes out, it's not a surprise. Sounds like a focus on scope and a focus on values. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. That is one of the things that I continue to do when I'm writing writing assignments is the paper that just came in for my intro class was why is political obligation important for a community? That's a huge topic. And then I'm like, according to Socrates, you need to tell me what Socrates says and you need to tell me what Hobbes says and then you need to make them talk to each other and then you need to make an argument for why one is better than the other. And that's what those sub prompts do that I think is really helpful. I guess our next question is, for each of you, what are you going to do next? Heather. I will take that one. So I'm really interested in writing a piece on what analysis is, because I feel like we we tell them all the time, more analysis, but we don't actually clarify what we mean when we say analysis. And I don't think they have any idea of what they mean when they say analysis. And so I've started including an appendix in my ridiculously long syllabus that is like, what is analysis? And so at some point, I just need to write that up because... I think most of us struggle with communicating to our students what we mean when we say that word. And I think being a little more clear about about what we mean would actually help them learn to do it better. In terms of teaching, the project that I am hoping to work on right now is something that I started maybe two years ago after I went to the Digital Humanities Summer Institute on using annotate with students as a way to help them with group annotation and trying to work through those annotating skills moving towards better writing. And so that's for my American politics classes that I am hoping to get better at. I get frustrated by the tech quickly and then drop it. And so that's one of the projects I'm hoping to work on this summer and hoping to do some comparisons in different classes with how students do with group annotations versus annotating on their own. So can you explain that when you say group annotations, like they're all reading the same PDF and then like marking on it? Yeah. So it's essentially you sort of load the PDF online and then you can assign small groups of students to all work in the same version of the PDF. And so they actually can go through and put comments on each other's annotations and say you could find someone else's interpretation 
and let them either deepen it, disagree with it, link it to some other part of the text where they can start flagging for each other and having a conversation that is deeply in a relatively small section of a text. Right, Heather, I'm thinking about this for American political thought and African-American political thought. That's wonderful. I love that idea. Beyond, I get some value out of collecting their annotations, which I also do in American political thought, where I show them how to annotate. I give them that same piece from Braver. And then for the first couple of weeks, I actually collect their annotated readings and hand them back. And then I'd like to start trying this group annotation as a way for them to start thinking of reading and working through text as more of a collective exercise and conversation. What was the software you used for that? I believe it's called Annotate. Is it iAnnotate? iAnnotate is an iOS app or an Android app. It's not an app. It's a a web tool. Might be Hypothesis. I know a lot of people use that for that. We'll check on that. Yes. We'll add that to yes. the show notes. I found it very interesting to use. And then the one time I tried teaching it, students had all sorts of questions. And I basically was at the front of the room like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so then I scrapped it and just need some amount of time to go back in and play with it and anticipate more of what the questions would be. Well, what you did was gather the questions. <laughs> this is, yes, let's That's right. call it an, a, a research Yes, expedition. yes, exactly. <laughs> because it turns out much of teaching is not being successful. Right. <laughs> <laughs> trying things. Oh, that didn't work very well. I'm going to do it differently next time. It's an iterative process. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, thank you so much for the insights that both of you've provided. I think that gives a lot of faculty food for thought. Thanks so much for having me. I, I'm honored to be a part of the SUNY Oswego crew. Yes, I was excited to be back. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.